Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. We want to acknowledge, um, before we plunge in here, that we are sandwiched as we stand and sit here this morning between two turnings. Uh, One is the fall equinox, which is tomorrow, right? That's the time of the year when light and darkness are in balance here in the northern hemisphere. Uh, And in the flow of the season of creation that you all have been in as a whole church throughout this month, today is Climate Sunday. Uh, And so the other turning is Friday's climate strike. Uh, any of you participate in the climate strike? Me too. Yeah. Your daughter. Your daughter, yeah, as is appropriate. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, 600,000 people in, throughout the United States participated in the climate strike on Friday, and over 4 million folks worldwide. Um, <clears throat> uh, and at the Ventura event, um, we were representing, and we thought we'd continue to represent here with our Climate Strike t-shirts. We um, only had extra larges left, thus the very fashionable tie at the waist. Uh, so mindful of these two uh, important turnings, uh, let us now turn to our scripture reading. Our scripture today is from Jeremiah 8. My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick. Hark, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn, and dismay has taken a hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Amen. Let's go back to the first Jeremiah slide. You're going to have to, yeah. Uh, So you've been focusing on Jeremiah during your Season of Creation lectionary series. Uh, The main focal text for this fourth Sunday in the Season of Creation is from Jeremiah 8. It's one of the passages that earned Jeremiah the moniker, the weeping prophet. This heartsick advocate records the lament of his people in a time of drought and He's hearing from them the age-old question of what theologians call theodicy. It's the question of where is God in all of this pain? Their desperation is underlined in the poignant realization in the yellow. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Uh, Some of you come from the Midwest or from agrarian cultures, and you know that when the crops are meager, it's rough. 
Uh, and now Jeremiah's people are haunted with the specter of starvation. This was the terrible reality for an ancient agrarian people who were utterly dependent upon the land and the ele elements. Jeremiah then expresses his empathy. I hurt when my people hurt. Through the metaphor, interestingly, of health care. He wonders why the famous medicinal plant, balsam root, there is a balm in Gilead. Balsam was native only to Palestine, but it was a luxury export all over the ancient world. Uh, it's not sufficient for their struggles. Their care system has collapsed. People are dying. And the prophet's head has become a fountain of tears for the poor. The poor always feel the effects of natural and social disasters. Jeremiah is surely a tract for our times because on our weary planet, there is plenty to weep about. By now, especially on the heels of last Sunday's focus here and Friday's climate strike, most of you are well-versed in the facts of climate crisis. We are facing interlocking ecological and social catastrophes that are rapidly pushing our civilization civilizational project into a dead end. So we won't belabor the fact today. Let this one image here suffice. This is the infamous hockey stick curve, shown across some 24 indices, such as human population levels, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, exploitation of fisheries, destruction of tropical forests, paper consumption, number of motor, motor vehicles, water use, the rate of species extinction, and of course, global temperature rise. Our disastrous re-engineering of the planet has invoked a new definition of hubris. We live in the age of the Anthropocene. It's difficult to grasp the ultimatum of global warming existentially. The slow but relentless catastrophe of ecological disaster seems remote from our daily lives, but it is upon us. What we have long feared is playing out faster and more brutally even than most scientists imagined. Two years ago, New York Magazine, the epitome of the popular press, offered this grim feature, which pointed out that apocalyptic scenarios are no longer futuristic. They are already being endured by the poor and people of color at home and abroad, who feel the effects of climate catastrophe first and worst. Wallace Wells' summary analysis of climate catastrophe has now come out as a book. The facts are in, yet it is still difficult to cut through the layers of despair and distraction that obscure our grasp of and ability to respond to the social and ecological crisis that is stalking our history. Now, friends, this is not 
abstract for Chad and I. The realities of climate chaos hit us particularly hard almost two years ago during the Thomas Fire in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. California's largest wildfire on record to date, burning more than 280,000 acres. The conflagration searing our consciousness, an apocalyptic unveiling of the truth about our historical situation. Pictured here is the burn scar from Thomas in Ventura County where we live. You can see that the fire completely surrounded the Ojai Valley. Our town of Oakview is indicated by the yellow symbol. 80% of our watershed was scorched. And of course we understand that wildfires and subsequent mudslides are part of the natural ecology of our bioregion, but the unprecedented conditions of aridity and drought that caused this monster fire were aberrant. The Thomas Fire was another natural disaster fueled by climate crisis. And so here's that hockey stick graph again. This time it's measuring aridity. A 2016 study stated that, quote, warming and drying have significantly increased fire season fuel aridity across the western U.S., end quote. The cause, you'll see there on the graph ACC, that is anthropogenic climate change. Here's a map of what NOAA's National Center for Environmental Information is now call, now call billion-dollar weather events. In 2017, there were no less than 17, including the Thomas Fire, and yet the media still will not name climate plainly as the cause of extreme weather events. Or worse, officials speak of it as if these things are something being done to us rather than by us. So there is plenty to weep about. So, uh, right, this is, uh, this is adult church. This is talking about really tough stuff. I know it's been raised multiple times already this month during the season of creation. Some of you are deeply immersed in this kind of material. For others of you, don't think about it too much. This is a time, as a civilization, we should be regularly taking time to try to figure out the meaning of these events. But that's not the case because we're so easily distracted. So yay, church is a time where we can circle up around these very inconvenient truths. questions of our time is, is there a bomb in Gilead? And Jeremiah was wondering that too. But Jeremiah was always clear that grieving must also lead to action, specifically the hard work of repentance, 
that is turning our individual and collective hearing histories around from a dis di disastrous direction. Ironically, this goofy little Christian cartoon unwittingly names one of our major problems, burning fossil fuels every day in our cars. Here's another image of the automobile as symbol of our terminal addiction. It captures our bipolar culture of manic depression as we realize we don't know how to slow down our relentless march toward climate disaster because the market economy upon which we all depend, into which we are all deeply entwined, is predicated upon the consumption of fossil fuels. Which brings us today to our gospel reading from Luke 16, which is a call for us to figure out how to defect from this dysfunctional culture and system. This reading is from Luke 16, verse 1 through 13. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided to, what to do, so that when I am dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master comm commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is a prayer based on the following quote from a base community conversation in the Solentiname Islands of Nicaragua, found in the infamous work The Gospel in Solentiname, uh, written by Ernesto Cardinal. Uh, the conversation was based on the passage in Luke that was just read. All the wealth on earth has been created by the workers. The clothes that we, that we have were made by workers. The shoes we walk in were made by other workers. The food we eat was produced by workers in the field. 
the house we live in, and even the great sky, sky, skyscrapers in the cities, and the highways and bridges we owe to the workers. Creator God, awaken us to see the signs of our time. Provoke us to understand what time it is. Help us to comprehend the historical moment that we find ourselves in. We live in a world of competition and commodification. The God we worship in this world goes by the name Mammon. It is a world that prioritizes profit over people and planet. Help us to be defectors, to depart from the dominant economic praxis of exploitation. Give us the moral courage to be subversive, to practice radical hospitality and solidarity. God, help us to trust in you, not money. For in the end, the only real use of money is to create beloved community. Amen. Bit of a weird story worth paying attention to. So one of the bombs in Gilead for us is scripture. And we want to take a careful look at today's gospel, if we want to bring that up. Uh, Jesus' parable begins with a matter-of-fact acknowledgement that his world, like ours, was ruled by the elites. In this case, an absentee landlord class. He introduces two archetypal characters in this story. Pay attention to it. The first is a rich man. And Luke has a lot to say about this group throughout his gospel, which is to say a lot about people like us. In fact, the middle part of Luke's gospel virtually hangs on a skeleton of parables and stories about the rich. Notice from this list the straightforward refrain, there was a rich man, there was a rich man. And we could add to this list the extended parable of the banquet in Luke 14 or the parable of the pounds in Luke 19. Luke's concern with these unflattering portraits is not just to critique affluenza, but to heal it as a killing pathology and to assert an alternative to the ruling class cosmology. The second character in our gospel parable is called in Greek an oikonomon, a manager. Like a modern corporation, the ancient landowner didn't run daily operations. This was up to the managers. This dude, too, is part of an elite, literate, bureaucratic class. It was a cutthroat world and tenuous. Managers had to ensure profit for the master, take a cut for themselves, and do all of this without bleeding the peasants so dry that the economy would collapse. So think of this second character then as a sort of contemporary mortgage broker? We think a comparison uh, to those of us who are middle class folk today, educated folk, we think this image broadly applies. Like the oikonomos of old, we are privileged people who nevertheless are subservient to an economic system that both benefits us and victimizes us. While most of Jesus' parables feature peasants as their subjects, interestingly here, this story uniquely addresses us. So here's a plot summary of the story. Uh, this text is often referred to as the parable of the unjust or dishonest steward, which already biases our reading. But this approach employs the interpretive lens of moralistic capitalism, which takes the side of the boss in the story and vilifies the manager. So we would rather call this story the story of a defective manager, interpreting him as a 
middle manager in a large corporation who, just as she is about to be downsized because of below expectation sales numbers, improvises an act of creative resistance. She hopes this will reposition her toward the alternative relational economy, which survives just below the surface of the capitalist market system. She is, in fact, the hero of this parable, a sort of archetype for all of us who inevitably are ensnared in a toxic and oppressive economic system, but who nevertheless attempt to use our resources to try to repair things. If you look closely, you'll see that the structure here is chiastic, meaning it's a concentric circle drawing attention to the dramatic focal point in red, the manager's fateful decision to defect from the system. Now, here in the exchange, uh, in the drama, the second verb is usually translated not squandering in the New Testament, but scattering, such as in the preceding parable of the prodigal son. Uh, only here is it translated squandering. It's a rather moralistic term. So actually, this verb implies that our feral manager is already skimming and redistributing some of the possessions under his control, a practice that he will shortly intensify. In any case, this manager's dismissal is summary, confirming the absolute authority of the master. This poor guy doesn't try to argue or defend himself. There's no recourse or due process, thank you Starbucks, in this system. Instead, the next scene switches to his poignant internal dialogue in which the manager focuses on the stark alternatives facing him, knowing he won't ever be able to work in this town again. He is, after all, a soft-handed bureaucrat with many degrees from UCLA. He realizes he's not actually able to physically work as a day laborer, and to end up homeless on the street begging would obliterate what remains of his social honor. His options are death by digging or death by begging. The story now turns on the unemployed manager's conclusion in verse 4. Though her action plan is not yet revealed, the hoped-for result is she's going to do whatever it takes to cross over from the economy of the master to the economy of the community. She's defecting from her patron's world, in which the social relations of the many are cannibalized in the service of wealth accumulation for the few. This manager's alternative is to keep scattering that wealth in order to strengthen the older but still surviving village economy of mutual aid. And the key value of this ethos is hospitality. So they will receive me into their home economics. Having been kicked out of the great household of the master, this manager must now rely on village households for survival. Well, the rest of the story unfolds quickly, revealing her subversive initiative. She's holding a fire sale on debt, a sort of a reenactment of the old Levitical vision of Jubilee release. She does this before word of her firing gets out. Tell me how much you owe indicates that she doesn't actually have the accounts with her. The amount she's writing off is roughly equivalent to her master's profit margin. There are only two examples given here, as opposed to the more traditional 
parabolic rule of three because this scene isn't the punchline. That comes in the next verse. The master, who of course inevitably finds out about the ruse, unaccountably commends his rebellious manager. Like in Luke's later parable of the pounds, the master concedes, yep, this system is corrupt, acknowledging that the one he's fired is a manager of injustice, a better translation than unjust manager. But he gives her credit for being shrewd, that is, practicing self-interest. You see, the manager's action has put the master in a bit of a bind. The jefe has been outsmarted because the debtors would give praise to the master for authorizing this debt amnesty, making him a local hero. So to save face, he's got to follow through on the write-off so as not to place the whole system in crisis. But for all of this, eh, the landowner's world remains pretty much intact. The manager's face, however, now lies in the hands of villagers who benefited from his unilateral debt restructuring. Finally, Jesus decodes the parable. For the children of this age are shrewder, same verb, than the children of light in dealing with their own generation. Jesus seems to be acknowledging that as long as this world persists, considerable tactical savvy, considerable tactical savvy is required by the children of light. In this case, the manager helps the debtor class in order to help herself. Hard-pressed peasants get a measure of relief, and she secures status among them so she'll have a place to stay. She hopes her jubilatory gestures rebuild the very social relations the master routinely plunders. It's a kind of a class defection, which brings us to the real moral to the story. Can we go back one slide? Jesus has told a story about a rapacious predatory world of ancient commodity management presided over by the children of this age. Luke chooses this moment to introduce a unique term in this story, make friends of yourself by means of the mammon of injustice. So here in verse 9, we see clear resonance between Jesus' exhortation and the manager's conclusion at the center of the parable. From Jesus' perspective, The question is not whether the mammon system will fail. The Greek word here, interestingly, is eklipe, from where we get our term eclipse. It's only when it will fail. It's not sustainable. Interestingly, the eternal resting place here is a tent, suggesting that redemption lies in a return to Israel's old ways. Jesus offers a kind of a pun. So if you haven't been trustworthy in the unjust thing in which you have placed your trust, that's the meaning of mammon, literally, who will entrust you with something of actual value? So if you and I are indeed stuck with the mammon system, we'd sure as hell better make sure we're working to subvert it and not to strengthen it. Because this parable, which commended a manager's necessarily ambiguous attempt to redeploy her resources on behalf of the community, now concludes with this terrifying adage, an unequivocal declaration of the incompatibility 
of the two worlds. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon seems to be Jesus' metaphor for the economic system of domination. His rhetorical dualism here is his way of politicizing the issue as a crucial one. He is urging his disciples to defect from the system from which they seem to be benefiting, but which is actually killing them. Since Jesus' exhortation here is typically dismissed or hopelessly watered down by our North American churches, we do well to look to two of our most revolutionary farmer theologians for help in restoring its bite. Clarence Jordan passed away 50 years ago next month, and he started Koinonia Farms in rural Georgia at the height of the Cold War, a place where blacks and whites farm together and where the Habitat for Humanity movement was birthed. Clarence liked to put it this way, Chad. It doesn't say you shouldn't serve God and mammon. It says you can't. I couldn't quite pull that off, so I thought I would hand that over to my brother here, which means we have to make hard choices to defect. And then, of course, Wendell Berry, the great agrarian and ecological theologian of our time. Paraphrase Jesus this way. If we do not serve what coheres and endures, we serve what disintegrates and destroys. Which brings us back to climate catastrophe. It is time to make choices, however partial and imperfect and contradiction-ridden. Even though we middle-class folk are stuck in this carbon economy that is strangling the planet. That doesn't mean we can't monkey wrench it in small ways and maybe even big ways to try and win a future for our children. So back to the dilemma we stated at the outset. We are heading for a historical dead end. How do we all do our part to defect from and subvert this system? Our part to help turn our history around. And we should, well, so many of us all joined that strike on Friday. Um, there will be many more strikes, but I was talking with Sabrina. Strikes are not enough. So what do we do? One of the organizing groups for Friday's climate strike was a movement aptly named under our historic crisis, the Extinction Rebellion. This international movement has clear demands that are listed up there, ones which we subscribe to. And they have a lively chapter right here in Los Angeles. So another possibly fun group for you all to join or for the women's group to just go check out one night, one Thursday night. So we look to people of faith around the world who are taking action for inspiration, such as the Interfaith Witness for Climate Change in Boston last year. 
This group drew on the symbolism of Holy Week and Passover to confront the governor of Massachusetts in an action entitled, Let My People Go, Exodus from Fossil Fuels. This is the sort of animating public liturgy that our churches can bring to the struggle. And last summer, a group of Presbyterians made a 1,200-mile pilgrimage on foot to their General Assembly in St. Louis to try to persuade their denomination to divest from fossil fuels. In doing so, they were retracing the footsteps of the Exodus journey of liberation. And let us not forget your very own, our own pastor, Josh Lopez Reyes. He's pictured here with the Eco Justice and Faith Project team. They're meeting with We the People of Detroit organizers this month to learn about water justice among poor folk. We think today's scripture calls us to this work. Like Jeremiah, we need to feel the pain and grief of this ecological crisis. And like the dissident manager of Jesus' parable, we need to face the hard choices in front of us and use our imagination for how best to change bad habits and to begin subverting the rule of the carbon pharaohs. So, we want to leave you with two key words for you to discuss. One is change. We like this image made of small change because in this work, no step is too small. So what you come up with is not too small. But also, given what we're dealing with, and what we are up against, no step is too big either. And here's an example of small change. This uh, represents our saga of switching to biodiesel. This is not Ched pictured here. And it's also not our car, because that car <laughs> is way too clean. But you can visit our car. It's the dirtiest one on the street. We have exactly that model car, and we run it on grease, which is clean burning and a byproduct. And our biodiesel is made by a friend who lives close to us from all the oil that he collects from the county fair. Once a year, he goes and collects all this oil, and then he runs a little biodiesel business um, right in our valley. It took us, it felt like forever. We worked on it for a long time. It took us two years. Um, to line up, and now we are feeling really fine, driving down to LA in our little biodiesel vehicle. The second word is defect. We have got to figure out how to defect from the systems that are holding our planet hostage. Using whatever resources and accesses and improvisational intelligence we have, to monkey wrench the machinery of climate catastrophe. Of course, friends and families and governments who are still loyal to the carbon status quo will accuse us of being defective. 
Exactly so. It is a double entendre. Jesus calls us to a discipleship of defection. So two final examples. First, in the spirit of the subversive manager. Divestment from fossil fuels, y'all. It's uh, an important strategic example of defection, individually, collectively, urgently. Do you know that globally, the uh, divestment movement passed the $11 trillion mark last week um, with the University of California system divesting of its $80 billion portfolio? I mean, that's a big deal. This is all stuff that we can organize around, educate around um, in terms of shifting systems. Uh, but we've got a long way to go. And uh, so another subversive strategy is consciousness change, to fundamentally change our worldview. Um, for example, by defecting to an ecological map of reality rather than a political one. Um, and building our watershed literacy. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.